Uh, are you excited about this book? I read this to my kids, you know, last time. I, it would have to be over 15 years ago. And uh, so it was not a book that I read as a kid. And I read it as a parent. And then, uh, you know, I thought I remembered it because of the the one very sad thing that happens in the book. Yeah. And then I realized as I I read through the book, I had completely forgotten that the main plot of this uh, story was Uncle Hobart and Aunt B. I mean, it has several main plots. It does, but that's, I think that takes up the most page-wise. Yeah, I guess that's true. It, it floats around in the background. There's a lot of things going on in this book. There really are. If we take the thesis that we've been putting forward that the last four books made a continued narrative, uh-huh. this is kind of an extended coda that just goes off in all kinds of different directions. No, that I think that's what the 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 conclusion we came to last time was that like she she sort of fulfilled Ramona's like overarching like like character development previously. And this book is like you said, it's more like a reflection on where have we been and where are we going. The last time I left this behind, I remember thinking, oh, this is this is where what we end on. Of course, it, it wasn't what we ended on. Clary did return to Ramona briefly in the 90s. Yeah. But but I, it always felt like this was when I read it before, like this is what you end on. But reading it through this time, it it sort of points in directions the series could have gone later. You know, if if if, if uh, Cleary had had the inclination and the energy to do it, she could have turned Ramona into, you know, we could have followed her through middle school and on into high school. Um, but we but we never got to, I guess. Right. It's and it's clear when she when no, not to jump too far ahead, when she does pick Ramona back up in the early 90s, that. There is this, or is it the late '90s? Like, when did she write Ramona's World? That was uh, a, that was a, that was a weird. That was a point when I was not paying attention to Ramona. Um, <laughs> well, when she does pick Ramona back up, it's very much in the sense of a kind of a, it's kind of a soft reboot of the series. Like we're starting, kind of starting a new chapter in Ramona's life, and it, it's a fine. But we'll get to it. But it's a fine book. But Ramona Forever is. Uh, is really to me. Well, this book has a lot of. Well, I guess we should introduce ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's Phil over there, and that's John over there, <laughs> <laughs> and this is Clickercast, a Beverly Cleary podcast. So we're talking about Ramona Forever, uh, which came out in 1984. Four. Okay. I was, yeah. I, I, of course, your mind goes immediately to George Orwell oh, or, to those, or to those Apple Macintosh ads. Well, this was a huge year because this was the year of Ghostbusters. It was the year of uh, Gremlins. It was, a, it was a big year, like 80s pop culture wise. And uh, I was eight years old when this book came out. So I was prime age to absorb Ramona Forever. It and Dear Mr. Henshaw were just two formative books for me as a kid. Like these were the two Beverly Cleary books that just kind of 
I kept coming back to because Dear Mr. Henshaw, because it was the first like kids book that really felt like it was dealing with some weighty issues and Ramona forever because it was just so full of incident and character stuff and like pathos. And uh, it was, you know, it's just it's a it's a, a jam packed little book. Right. Well, I was 16 when this book came out, so <laughs> I was I had just gotten my driver's license and was going to see Ghostbusters in the theater <laughs> like, I guess, three or four times. I had a I had a friend who was obsessed with that. Oh, really? And and I remember because that was around the time that the VHS was taking off and the big movie companies finally gave in and decided that they would sell home movies. And my friend called me up like in 1985 and said, I have Ghostbusters on VHS. It was the <laughs> proudest moment of his life. Yeah. I had a friend who lived down the street. He had just moved into the neighborhood and they were the family who had two VCRs. Uh -oh. And so every movie they rented became part of their film library. <laughs> and uh, and so they had Ghostbusters as well. That was a, a, a much viewed film the year the year after. But so you were probably you were probably in your car. I'm going to assume it was like a Trans Am and you were like <laughs> just ripping all over the 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 city going from Crown Books to Walden Books to B. Dalton. Picking up all the Beverly Cleary books. I bet this was a big part of that time in your life. It was a, it was like a mid eighties uh, Chrysler that my parents got, and <laughs> I, I remember I, I dented it a lot, and I, I apologize <laughs> to my parents now for that. But um, <laughs> but no, I was I was I was, I was Beverly Cleary was was behind me. Although uh, my my little brother Dan, uh, mm -hmm. who was born ten years after me was just coming up to, to chapter books at, around this time. I remember coming back from college, which would be a couple of years later, um, and seeing some of these Beverly, Beverly Cleary books I'd never seen before, including Dear Mr. Henshaw lying around the place. And I, I kind of had a wistful, like, oh, the kids get... You know, when I was a kid, we only had this many Beverly Cleary books. Yeah. <laughs> when I was a kid, we only had 14 Beverly Cleary books. Now <laughs> it's seven years later and there's 16 Beverly Cleary books. <laughs> I belonged to uh, uh, one of those monthly book clubs that they would send a book in the mail, like a hardback, like you would get like sort of the hardback edition of whatever the popular books were at the time. So Dear Mr. Henshaw and Ramona Forever, that's the that's the way I originally got these. And it was exciting uh, because I believe at the time, like I was, you know, I was still roughly, roughly Ramona's age. And uh, and she was going through a lot of the stuff that I was going through. And this is a book. Ramona Forever is a book that's really about changes and shaking up the family and uh, uncertainty and the fear of what's coming up. It's about admitting your failures. And I just, there's all kinds of stuff going on in this book, including, as you said at the beginning, uh, the vile Uncle Hobart. Right. We should probably start with our opening lines just to keep everything of a piece. Otherwise, yes. we'll get too deep into this and we'll forget to do it. Uh, should I read that? Go right ahead. Guess what, Ramona Quimby asked one Friday evening when her Aunt Beatrice dropped by to show off her new ski clothes and stay for supper. Ramona's mother, father, and big sister Beezus, whose real name was Beatrice, paid no attention and went on eating. Picky Picky, the cat, meowed through the basement door, asking to share the meal.
isn't this the first time we've we've seen Aunt Beatrice since like Beezus and Ramona? It has been many books since she's <laughs> since she's been anything. She's been mentioned, right? But this is we this is the first time she is an actual character. Well, she she had that that like uh, moment at the end of Beezus and Ramona where she shows up uh, as the sort of the 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 glorious uh aunt you know to be right for for Beezus to emulate and then we we get this little object lesson about how uh e even even dear aunt beatrice and uh, and mom didn't get along when they were kids right but this is okay so it's the last time we really saw aunt beatrice she was like the helpful, sweet aunt who was kind of the only person that Beezus could relate to. This time, we're immediately introduced to the fact that she's sleeping with some guy named Michael. <laughs> like, yeah. literally, that's like how we're, how we, the, the, that's where she is in life. She's dating some guy named Michael who's buying her ski clothes, who she is going on a skiing trip with. Obviously, you have to read between the lines for some of these things, but this book actually. <laughs> oozes a certain amount of sexuality i have to say i just want to say in all future printings of this book i wanted to have the quote oozes a certain amount of sexuality hyphen john mccoy on yes. the cover no i think it's very clever because um because ramona is just on the edge of being able to understand these things or being able to to, to see what's going on and 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 she pieces together through the course of this book what uh aunt beatrice's love life is mm -hmm. but but she's never you know what what I, I i i find fascinating about this is the character of hobart oh, of yeah. uncle hobart because we've seen this character before in clary books it, the 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 um the adult who can't stop teasing children yes. because it's so damn fun to do, as we've yeah. mentioned before. I, I hope that our, our, our children will forgive us. I mean, <laughs> my, my children are, are, are grown and they're off now out of the house. You still have uh, one at home. I hope, you know, they can all find it in their heart to forgive us when we when we pull out the dad jokes, when we when we act stupider than we are, because it is so much fun. <laughs> I will say though that, uh, and we'll and we will of course discuss him in in great detail. That I never get a real sense of who Hobart is. Like, I'm sure that he and Aunt Beatrice have real conversations and stuff. But because we really only ever see him when he is interacting with Ramona, uh, he just comes across as just this boorish jerk we also see him and beatrice yell at each other so <laughs> here's a here's a weird moment of personal intersection we are introduced to hobart in this first chapter when howie who whose uncle hobart is howie is is hobart's nephew mentions hobart as being very rich because he's been off in saudi arabia building oil fields yeah. Which is which is a, a, an interesting choice, but it's an interesting choice for me because on my mother's side, there are three brothers and I never can tell them apart and I can never figure out which one is which. But two of them were involved in major engineering projects in the Middle East during the 1970s and 1980s, and they got 
stupid rich doing it. And Uh this was the era of OPEC and rapid development in uh, the Middle East. I mean, I know that they, they, one of them worked in Saudi Arabia himself, but I think one actually settled in Iraq and one settled in Iran uh, in the days before the uh, 79 revolution. And when the, and, and they each married uh, a woman from the, those respective uh, countries. And so when the Iran-Iraq war started, there was a lot of uncomfortableness in the family. Uh-huh. Um, that's how I always think of those uncles, because they aren't, they weren't present in my life. They were off globetrotting, doing crazy things in the Middle East. But they were, they, they were these kind of mythical, rich characters and so when they they when hobart shows up that's that's who i think of he uh and he and you can tell that he doesn't have he doesn't have any relationship with howie or willa jean uh he shows up with inappropriate presents (laughs) uh a couple of camel saddles uh a unicycle for howie which i assume he traveled all the way from the middle east with (laughs) uh and uh and an accordion for Willa Jean. And of course, Willa Jean is still like, what, like five years old, four years (laughs) old. Uh, So it's, it's this, he, he, he bursts in uh, Mrs. Kemp. The grandma is just thrilled to see him. And the first thing he does is he humiliates Ramona uh, by referring to her as Howie's girlfriend, as Howie's girlfriend. And then he sings the song Ramona to her. Right. Which becomes a recurring thing. And she says, Ramona knew right then that she did not like Uncle Hobart and never would. Uh, And in that same paragraph, we get reference to Grandpa Day, who is a uh, who is a new character. There's uh, a lot of characters introduced out of nowhere in this book. And uh, and and then we have Beatrice being brought back in. There's a there's this is unlike a lot of Cleary books. You kind of have a lot of different uh people to keep track of it's similar um, to the old like henry huggins books where he'd have right. like six or seven friends running around plus neighbors plus uh shop owners like this is the this is sort of the ramona quimby expanded universe except that uh we don't get henry huggins in this book surprisingly enough yeah ah, poor henry he's 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 lost to the ages at this point yeah and even and even beatrice is done with her best friends in this book yeah yeah we we don't we, we don't hear anything about that but i i do want to point out you know because you 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 seem to be you seem to be down on hobart yes. and 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 reading it through this time i i i was a little bit more on hobart's side <laughs> i i i i kind of i kind of like where he's coming from you know he's he's coming in he's he's obviously knows nothing about what kids want but but that's kind of a great thing to have an uncle you know can you imagine an uncle who'd show up and give you a unicycle or uh, an accordion you know Uh, i i I wanted an accordion as a kid and i never got one i i i know that well okay so remember that i grew up with this book i was this age when this book came out so to me, I grew up with Hobart always being the annoying, the annoying guy. Like I only ever saw this through Ramona's eyes. So that's always going to color it. Uh, and I will say that when Willa Jean destroys the accordion, as she soon does, she sits on it and to make it to make it make a noise when she destroys it. That was heartbreaking to me as a child. 
Uh, I hated the fact that Willa Jean broke an, an instrument that I was just just at this age becoming fascinated by. Yeah. Yeah. No, I found a I once found a concertina in, in a um, that was abandoned in a uh, alley. Uh-huh. Uh, and and I took it home, the, and my parents. I think that's the only way you can get concertinas. <laughs> and my and my parents uh, were 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 horrified, obviously. And the thing, you know, did not work. Yeah. You know, half the buttons on it were were to reeds that were completely blown out. But I loved that thing so much, you know. And <laughs> I'm sure it must have had fleas or something in it because my my mom conveniently lost it on me i think a couple weeks later so (laughs) i've I've always had a a fascination with the idea of uh, accordions um now maybe you know if i had if i had been given one i would have been the next weird al but yeah at least the next john linnell yeah yeah bill well this all this is uh built up to the to the idea that Ramona gets in trouble for Willa Jean busting up the accordion. And this is where Ramona is just like, holy cats, Mrs. Kemp doesn't like me. Like, that's a big, that's a big realization for her. She's just suddenly like, Mrs. Kemp doesn't like me. Uh, she had just assumed that adults liked all kids. And now she was realizing that this woman just didn't like having her in the house. And that's a point that is not refuted at all ever in the rest of this book. Like, it's a it's a it's kind of a true it's kind of true like Mrs. Kemp doesn't care for Ramona and that kind of sets up uh, a lot of incidents that that are followed through in this plot. Right. Well, it also sets up Ramona request making the request to her parents that she be allowed to just come home and be home with Beatrice yep. before the parents arrive. So. Uh, Beezus and Ramona are now officially latchkey kids. Yes, um, which you know this, this is not a this is not a, a surprising development. This was certainly something that would was big in the the seventies and. Uh, but you know, I it's it's funny because I'm I now that I think about it, I remember there there was sort of a debate around latchkey kids in the seventies, like whether whether that was a good thing or a bad thing to give kids that abil- that. Um, you know, amount of self uh, supervision, but uh, do, do kids even do it anymore? I wonder because the, today it seems like the pendulum has swung way back to parents being held responsible for kids every moment of their their waking hours, and the idea of leaving kids alone until the time that they are teenagers seems. Uh, I don't know. It's, it seems like like we we we've 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 gotten to a point of hyper protectiveness around kids. Well, I know that there's a lot more like after school. Like Mitzi is in an after school program. Like so, uh, so, so she has a place to be until there are people at the house. But uh, I mean, I I don't know. I don't know. There's a there's definitely not. You don't hear about latchkey kids anymore. And I think part of it is because school districts became more aware that there was a need for after-school supervision for children. Uh, and even Mr. and Mrs. Quimby are kind of iffy on the subject because they're like, uh, we don't, we, kids who spend all their time alone tend to just watch TV a lot and get up to no good. And, uh, and the girls have to really promise not to do that. Um, 
But we also, uh, just a few little things, we find out that Mr. Quimby is studying, really st- going to school to become a teacher. This is, uh, he is, he is in full child psychology mode again. And that uh, Picky Picky keeps getting brought up. We're getting more and more. We're get we're we're noticing picky picky more in this book. Uh, he he is a, a little more of a nuisance. Uh, a lot of references to like he just can't he can't quite jump up on that couch. Just put a put a pin in that. Now, which was the which was the book where he ate the pumpkin? That was that was Ramona was the Brave. Ramona the Brave. So that was a long time ago. Yes, I, I mean, well, not that long ago. But I mean, if you look at the the, the timeline of these books, yes, <laughs> that was probably last year in the timeline of these books. But uh, it was about a decade and a half ago. Right. With the, with these, the order if of these you were, if you were reading these books as they came out, you lost you lost patience for more picky picky action a long time ago. <laughs> Well, I guess they're never going to get back to that cat, you thought, as you were <laughs> hanging out with your girlfriend, because it's been quite a while. <laughs> yeah, somewhere there must have been like a picky picky fan club that was just. <laughs> I, I often wonder, I wonder, if, did anybody ever name their cat picky picky because of these books? Like, was that ever a thing? Like people were naming, maybe people were still naming their cats like Fonzie and stuff at this point. <laughs> if anyone out there had a cat named Picky Picky or knew someone with a cat named Picky Picky, uh, let us know right, right into us. Uh, so yeah, so they're going to be latchkey kids. That, that, that's it. Uh, and, they, and, the, and the parents sort of, uh, instead of telling Mrs. Kemp, like, oh, the kids don't want to hang out with you anymore. They are like, they say, we're going to give it a week just so she can spend more time with her son. The end. We don't ever actually hear about Howie's parents. <laughs> like, they're kind of non-players in this book. <laughs> but, uh, so we know that Mr. Kemp, I mean, Mr. Uh, Mr. Quimby is studying for school. Uh, they're worrying a lot about money. And uh, he's making a lot of doodles of dollar signs and babies. <laughs> but we don't know why. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, we, we we laugh. Cleary is is not necessarily the the master of foreshadowing. Right. Well, actually, at this point, the girls have sort of figured out that they th- the Beatrice Beezus has figured out that their mom is pregnant. Right. Yeah. Even though yeah. this is also the book where the parents do this frustrating thing. I still find frustrating. The parents don't tell the children important news until they can do it in a way that they find amusing. <laughs> like the parents seem to love discussing very important life-changing things behind the kids backs in front of them. And then when the kids ask about it, acting all coy and that happens with the baby and it happens with another big plot that's coming up. Right. Right. Well, I, I think with the other big plot, it makes a little more sense because they are being sensitive to someone else's uh, private lives, I guess. Right. But Michael's anyway, right. Yeah, yes, Michael. Poor Michael. Poor Michael. Yeah, we never learned what happens to Michael. Anyway, uh, there, there is uh, the the latchkey segment goes through a chapter that uh, of of Beatrice or Beezus being uh, a bit bossy around the house, Ramona resenting that. It, it this felt like a little bit of a retread to me because I've seen I've, I've at this point I've read through. It seems like two dozen books of Ramona and Beezus <laughs> squabbling. Okay, but this does have a good payoff. 
This has a really good. So this is an this is an incident that really stuck with me as a kid where uh, Ramona is going out to play with Howie, who's riding his new unicycle. And uh, they're kind of she and her sister are kind of snipping back and forth at each other. And as Ramona goes outside, she calls her sister uh, Pizza Face. She says, so long, Pizza Face. And oh, and throughout this book, we've been told that Beezus is having a skin problem. Like she's, she's developed acne and it's, she's, it's, she's very self-conscious about it. Won't eat chocolate uh, as it's pointed out, uh, which is a thing that people used to believe caused acne. So when she says so long pizza face, it says before she slammed the door, she was horrified to see Beezus's face crumple uh, as if she were about to burst into tears. And then later on, uh, Beezus yells at her and, is like it's not my fault that my face is all like pimply it's all like gross and oily like a pizza and she calls Ramona a hateful little creep and Ramona says you know like she'd been called a creep before and a little creep before but never a hateful little creep and that meant it was that was serious like to be called a hateful little creep and as a kid reading this that to be called hateful was not an insult. It was a judgment. And I remember being called hateful uh, by my mom. Like, that's hateful. And that was a huge thing to call a kid or anyone was that they were being hateful. And so when I read this book for the first time, when Beezus said, you hateful little creep, I felt what Ramona felt, which was that Beezus was truly hurt and that Ramona had done something just shockingly vile. Well, it didn't hit me that that's hard. Maybe I, I'm just more used to uh, maybe Being called maybe hateful. yeah. I mean, Rob and I used to used to yell at each other a lot as kids, so maybe <laughs> maybe I'm used to to that. And call each other pizza face. I never called him pizza face. That would have been a good put down, though. I think uh, I should have used that. You still can. There's still well, time. He's 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 cleared up in his in his middle age. So I mean, I you st you still can call him that, though. <laughs> uh, that's my that's my challenge for you. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so that was the, that, that whole chapter was basically just like the fight, and then we move into chapter four. Now, this is the chapter that I, of course, remembered from the book uh, as being the central incident of the book uh, with, well, we'll just come out and say it, with the death of beloved Picky Picky. Um, but but the, the, it was surprising reading it through now because I remember being a lot sadder reading this, this through when I was, because I was, as a parent, reading it to a, a, a child. It's one of these stories that is you know a child's first story about death you know the, when you when you write stories about death for children you're always trying to you're trying to um acquaint as gently as you can do you, your 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 children with ideas of mortality and you're worried about that and you're worried about answering questions and you're worried about whether or not you're doing severe psychological damage to them Reading it through now as a, a, a adult with grown up kids uh, who long since gotten over all that, uh, I, I'm, I'm struck by how sort of unscathed Ramona and uh, Beezus are by this. Their main concern is they don't want 
to cause any discomfort for their parents. They don't want, they're, they're worried that the, their parents are under a lot of stress. Well, they were they, told not to worry their mother. Right, because, and they, they exactly, because, and, and they're worried about their father who's studying for tests and everything, and they want to prove that they can get along by themselves uh, without supervision. So their concern is taking care of Picky Picky's body, providing him with a decent enough funeral and kind of moving on. And I was struck by how, in, in some ways, how little um, grief ran through this chapter. It's weird. To me, the grief, the reason I find this chapter so moving is because the grief has to be filtered through their pragmatism. Like, they don't ever have time to stop and reflect on what happened because, because like you said, they're so concerned with not upsetting their mother. That's to me what makes the chapter moving. And it's to me, and, and it's, and it all comes full and it all comes to light when the parents discover what the children have done and the mother bursts into tears. And she says, you poor little girls, because they, the parents understand the weight of it, even though the children don't seem to. I don't know. There's a, there's a remove from the grief that actually makes it more impactful to me because, because they're so concerned with just getting this cat's body out of the way. Uh, and they do. Like, they bust their tails to get this cat buried before their parents get home. Uh, we had a cat named Sally who was, as far as I can remember, always there in my life. I think the family got her before I was born. And so she was a very old cat. Uh, and and she died, um, I would know, probably around 1984, actually, sometime in the early 80s. And when she died, I just found her in the basement, mm. splayed out. You know, the cat just, like, collapsed so it was like like she was doing her, an imitation of like a a little cat uh, carpet, you know. If you if they, like someone had made oh. a carpet out of her, she had her legs splayed out in all directions. It was it was it was shocking to me and 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 distressing to me. And I realized that part of what was shocking about that was she was an old cat, and we it was expected that eventually she would go. But this was at a time when. You didn't really like there wasn't a lot of emphasis in pet ownership on taking your cat for preventative maintenance to the uh, to the vet. You know, at this point, I think that if I if many years later, when I was in grad school, we had a cat and the cat developed feline leukemia and we took that cat to the vet all the time. And we and when it was her time to go, we, we had to put her down and I was there with her. This kind of bespeaks a different time in pet ownership. I think, you know, that there was kind of that even up till this point, there was just sort of an expectation that you just let the cat would just kind of go on as long as it did. And poof, then it was gone. I agree. Uh, cats. Uh, we've had this discussion before when it comes to pet ownership. But excuse me. Excuse me. Uh, but. The, the one of the fascinating things about watching Beverly Cleary's books evolve is seeing how attitudes toward pet ownership evolves throughout them because we've had Ribsy and we've had uh, Picky Picky. And in the early days of Beverly Cleary's books, 
you wouldn't even give a thought to a cat. Like, like socks was like, oh, wow, a book about a cat. Like that's like as a pet, like that people like, that's interesting. It has a personality. Uh, I knew I had a few friends with cats, but they certainly weren't a huge, like a huge part of the family. Like they were just kind of around. And when they, when they inevitably passed, it wasn't something that we as friends ever even talked about. Like I, I had friends whose cats had passed, but I, they weren't like, oh, guess what? My cat died. They were just, I would find out later on. They were like, oh yeah, they died a few weeks ago. And it wasn't, I guess that it didn't affect them, but more that culturally we didn't treat cat death as something worth noting. I remember an episode of the Oprah Winfrey show back in the eighties. I believe it was like the late eighties that uh, was that I don't remember the actual topic of it. I remember watching it as a kid and the, the basic theme was, is it okay to feel sad when your pet dies? And they had all these experts on who were like, oh, it's totally normal to be sad when a pet dies. And other people were like, this is ridiculous. And that was still something that it wasn't that like black and white, but it was still something that people discussed. Like, it was it normal to be like upset at a pet death? Like, and 1984 was definitely that time when a pet would die and, you know, you'd bury it, you take care of it within the family, but it wasn't necessarily something that made a people made a point of like discussing with friends. Right. Well, at least when Picky when Picky Picky went, they put up a marker uh, gi- giving Picky Picky uh, Picky Picky's name as Picky Picky Quimby. Yes. So with with the Ramona Q uh, Quimby. Well, maybe in your drawing. In oh, my, it is in my drawing. It is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It now, only makes it. It only makes sense. <laughs> Who was the illustrator? Yeah, who was the illustrator? Is this, was this uh, uh, Tracy Dockery? This is, uh, no, Jacqueline Rogers. Jacqueline Rogers. Who, uh, who's, whose illustrations I like. They're fine. Uh, they're a little more cartoony than I like, but they're far more detailed than Tracy Dockery. She draws, uh, she draws Ramona. Excuse me again. Her Ramona looks like uh, one of the kids from like uh, the best Christmas pageant ever. Like she just sort of looks perpetually like ragged and a little dirty, which is to me what Ramona should look like. So I'm, I'm fine with them. But yes, yeah, she draws the she draws the Quimby, the Ramona Q, the kitty cat Q on the uh, on the on the headstone. One thing that I hadn't noticed as a kid that I notice now is that not only do the girls get over Picky Picky's death quickly, Ramona milks it a few times. Like it says, like she puts on her saddest face because she's trying to get attention for it. And she does it later on, too, when there when there's a threat of them having to move. She's like, what about Picky Picky's grave? And it's like she puts on her saddest face, his tiny little grave. And you're like, and so that <laughs> undercuts a lot of the actual emotion as well. You're like, oh, you went straight from like being sad about your cat to like using it to your advantage. Uh, but. Yeah, so the parents come home. They find out that the girls buried the cat. And, like, Beezus' fingers are, like, cracked and bleeding. Like, she's had to dig a legit hole in the backyard. And uh, But she and Ramona are no longer enemies. In fact, this was kind of a weird bonding experience for them. They did something very uh, 
very adult and uh, very, uh, very, just very sibling esque. And that's when the parents finally reveal that they're that they're actually going to have a baby. Like the girls already knew, but the parents finally admit, yes. And Ramona's like, huh, I'd rather have another cat. <laughs> and then we get to the wonderful chapter titled It. This is a this is a, a lot of a lot of this chapter involves them trying to think of a name for the baby, uh, which is where as a child I first discovered first of all, as a kid, I discovered that Hobart was a name. Second, I discovered that algae is a name. And they settle on the name Algae as the kid's placeholder name while while Mrs. Quimby is pregnant, uh, in which Ramona, Mr. Quimby recites, Algae went out walking, Algae met a bear, the bear was bulgy, the bulger is Algae, which is a song that Mitzi eventually had to learn to play on the piano, which I was amused at. Wait, there's music to this? It's an actual song. I mean, I, I know it as a like a thing that was like in books when i was a kid like 101 stupid jokes for kids but uh yeah they uh it's a, it's a, it was a little too I, I couldn't tell you what it was because it's this little piano exercise but she had a song called like algae or something and when i looked at it i was like hey that's the set that ramona's song um but yes i did not know that algae algernon was a name uh but what's funny is uh we had a little placeholder name for Mitzi when uh, when she was still uh, in utero, uh, which was we called her we called her pizza because because we decided that everybody likes pizza. So that's a good name for a kid. As a kid, I was I was fascinated by all the, the name. Um, I, I remember looking up book, books on names all the time. I was always kind of disappointed in my own name. I, I having a name like John is you know on the, on the one hand there's nothing objectionable about it but on the other hand there's nothing exciting about it and i remember when uh i was a teenager i i um was convinced that my first child i would give the most ornate name i could i could think of and for some reason though that my mind always went to welsh names like Gwendolyn or Gwynefred uh -huh. or whatever, because that seemed like the most elaborate name you could come up with uh, other than naming it after like a J.R.R. Tolkien name or something like that. And then, you know, as, as I got older, I, I, I calmed down a lot and I realized that no kid wants to be named Gwynefred. Nope. Uh, <laughs> uh, what does John mean? John. John is like God is good or something like that it's like some really it's like dull the thing ultimate like generic like meaning of yeah a name. i mean the thing the thing about about john is it is the anglicization of jonathan which is in hebrew yonitan uh -huh. and i remember when i went uh, when i was an exchange student to israel in high school people called me yoni that has no point to that story but that was uh, <laughs> Oh yeah, I see. Yahweh is gracious. Yeah, right. That's it. God is yeah. Well, my name, my name, I was always amused by because Philip means uh, horse lover. <laughs> uh, so, which was always I, this irony, this deep irony to me as a child, because there, if there was one animal I did not like as a child, it was horses. Uh, but I've since gotten over my intense dislike of horses. Right now, now Philip, Philip is also a, a Greek name. How, how did you end up with a, a Greek name? So <laughs> the story that always gets told is that 
uh, my parents were trying to find a name for me that what no one else in the family had so that there could be no like no sign that they were playing favorites on any on either person's side of the family so they they poured over the the family histories to find a name that that didn't exist anywhere and uh I think I've told this story before, but maybe not on this show, which is my name. My name was originally supposed to be Philip Ian Gonzalez. And then my parents were like, if we call him that, though, his initials will be P.I.G. And <laughs> all the kids will call him Pig. And first of all, no one would have done that because no one would have known my middle name was Ian. Uh, but also they were thinking Ian Philip, like they were going back and forth. Finally, they settled after all after much hemming and hawing. They were like. Philip. Philip's Philip's the name. Uh, a good solid name doesn't mean anything to anyone. And as soon as they announced what my name was going to be, uh, my grandma, my dad's side, was like, "Oh, you named him after your cousin Philip," because there was like some like fourth or fifth cousin, a hundred times removed, named Philip, who nobody knew about, but of course she did. So you just can't win for losing in a family our size. That's my fascinating story about why I'm named <laughs> Philip. Well, you know, it could be worse. You could you could have one of the names that were popular that that year because of uh, a, a movie or uh, a, a singer or something like that. Like Fonzie. Like Fonzie, exactly. Like uh, like after after the song Rhiannon was was popular, and <laughs> there was like this huge bump in in girls named Rhiannon. Well, the top. I was nowhere in the top uh, top 100 that year, but uh, the top names were Michael, Jason, Christopher, David, James, John, Robert, uh, Brian, Matthew, and Daniel. So uh, you guys were all well represented in 1976. <laughs> well, the po most popular names in 2018. Oh, wait. Sorry. 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 Philip is on that list. Number, number 69. So there we go. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so so what's popular now? Right, popular now are Emma, Liam, Noah, Olivia, Ava. Wow, that's like seven of Mitzi's friends. <laughs> uh so so what were we talking about? Ramona uh, Forever. We're talking about it. <laughs> yes. This is also the chapter where we find out that uh Mr. Quimby might have to move the family. Because the only job he could find as a teacher in 1984, Oregon, is in a one-room schoolhouse in, like, rural Oregon. I was just at the Museum of Science in Boston, and they have a, an exhibition there that includes in it a an actual one-room schoolhouse that was relocated to be inside the museum. And part of the the exhibition is you're supposed to try and guess how long the schoolhouse was in use by uh -huh. looking around the schoolhouse and finding the clues. And of course, immediately I was, my eye was drawn to this, uh, line of presidents around the top, oh. <laughs> you know, and, and like, and it, it, it ended, I think with like, uh, Gerald Ford, this, this school, one room schoolhouse, it was in use up till the mid seventies. And, uh, I was a little shocked by that. I couldn't believe, but I, I guess it sort of makes sense if you're, if you're still in a community that's in the middle of nowhere, and, and there might be uh, kids that are, you know, like six or seven kids in this community, but they're all different ages. Yeah. 
that makes sense. But I guess today the approach is you bust those kids to whatever the nearest district would be. Well, of course, because those kids probably weren't getting the equivalent education of the kids at the big public school, uh, considering they were all being taught together by, I don't know, whoever drew the short straw that week. Is that how it worked? I remember that. <laughs> I remember that Laura Ingalls taught in a one-room schoolhouse for a while. No, that uh, was Almanzo taught in the one-room schoolhouse. Almanzo taught in the schoolhouse. Yeah, there was a. Or there was no. What? No. What, what was it? It was in the in the book Farmer Boy. It wasn't that he taught there. It was he went to a one-room schoolhouse, and there was this horrific story about these teenagers who came into the the uh, school the schoolhouse with the intent of beating up the teacher because they they did they did this to every teacher who came to the region they came in they beat them up and then the the teacher said i can't teach here and left and so the the kids would not have to go to school and so the 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 story goes that the new teacher had a bullwhip and was able <laughs> to whip the kids <laughs> into submission so, so whenever people talk about how great things were on the frontier, <laughs> this was even this wasn't even the frontier. This was like upstate New York. Well, is that one of those true Laura Ingalls stories that she told, or like one of those like I made my I made history a little more interesting than it actually was? Look, I believe everything Laura Ingalls Wilder tells me. So. <laughs> All I all I know about one room schoolhouses is that you are not allowed to bring pickled limes to school. That's that's all I that's all I know at this point. You get you get in deep you got to throw them out the window if you bring your pickled limes to school. Disgusting habit. Anyway, uh a surprise sort of. Yeah. Okay. Howie, so. Howie is sick of Uncle Hobart. <laughs> yes. Well, you know how he's gotten displaced uh, in his house. Hobart has been hanging around the the, the house, and how he, in an offhand, you know, and, and Willa Jean is is missing uh, is is missing Ramona. There's a kind of a touching see- sequence mm-hmm. here where Willa Jean calls up and says, "Ramona, come over and play." Yeah. And Ramona's like, I don't know. I don't know about that. <laughs> but uh, we also get a, a brief a brief glimpse of Howie growing up a little bit where uh, Ramona says she might have to move to southeastern Oregon. And he says, well, that'd be neat. They have wild horses down there. Maybe you could send me one. And she doesn't say anything, but uh, well, she does. She says, I wouldn't send you one even if I could catch it. But Howie understands that he upset her. And he says, I didn't mean I wouldn't miss you. I only meant if you have to leave and if catching a horse would be easy. And that's the first time we've ever seen Howie understand that he's said something uh, thoughtless because he's usually been so just literal up to this point. And in that one little sentence, uh, Beverly Cleary let us see that Howie's actually growing up a little bit. A little nice character moment. Uh, but... What happened is the kids realize that there's more going on in the lives of Aunt Beatrice and Uncle Hobart than even they had suspected. Right. Howie lets it slip in the in a bus ride one morning to Ramona that uh, uh, Hobart has been seeing some teacher yeah. around, uh, some 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 teacher with a, s- a little sports car. 
<laughs> this, these books, the continuity of these books makes no sense if you just read them straight through because because the character, because the last time we really saw Aunt Beatrice, she was dressed like uh, June Cleaver, helping <laughs> helping Beezus like with some of her simple life problems. And now she's tooling around in a sports car in clothes that were given to her by the last guy she slept with, uh, hanging out with Howie's uncle, like uncle from Saudi Arabia. It's, it's very different worlds than we were dealing with before. And it's just, it really just keeps hitting me over the head. How, how far we've come in this series. Right. Well, no, it is, it is a lot of things have changed in some ways. It's interesting to, Compare uh, uh, Aunt Beatrice to Aunt B in the two books because, as you say, in the in the last the last time we saw her, she was wearing like a little pillbox hat and yeah. she was driving like a little Fiat Roadster from the you know mid fifties or something like that. And now you know. I want to. I want to put in a, a plug here once again for Alan T. Green's uh, illustrations and the original illustrations, because B is got has got like the greatest blowout, and she looks just <laughs> like she looks just like you know she's she's watches Charlie's Angels religiously, um, and and Hobart Hobart looks like you know. Um, I don't. I don't know. Like a like a like a young Kenny Loggins. He really does. This is a man. You know what the inside of his van smells like. <laughs> and 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 you know there there's a there's a picture of the two of them later in the book when they're having a kind of a fake spat and they're staring each other down and there's this kind of a weird smoldering sexuality between the two of them that is yep. like a a very seventies kind of uh, soft rock sexuality. Uh huh. It looks like something out of uh, what's the Barbara Streisand movie where she's the boxer? Oh, the main event. <laughs> yes. For some reason, I see it. and I just think the main event. Yeah, that um, would. That's a good. Uh, that's a good soundtrack for this. Or, yeah. Uh, <laughs> also, they're they're obvious. Even though these illustrations are in black and white, they are wearing a lot of earth tones. But yeah, I love I love her hair. I love his beard. Um, it's uh these are this are these are illustrate you can't replace these like as good as later illustrations may be this is a these are books very much of their era and uh and and it works um so the kids find out that their that their aunt is getting married to this to this to this man that they're not crazy about uh and they they've just got to they've just got to deal with it at least they get a kind of a revenge on their parents when uh their mom announces that Aunt B is coming over with uh, a, ma uh, a man uh, as a guest and they say, oh, we know it's Hobart. And they yeah. get to like they get to pull a, you know, a reverse Shyamalan on them. Yep. It's uh, it's 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 actually very satisfying that uh, that the kids are like, yeah, we know we figured it out. We're not stupid. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so Hobart and Aunt V show up. And there's a there's a tense little scene. The kids are letting him know in no uncertain terms that they think it's time for him to leave town, go back to Saudi Arabia. Yep. And uh, and also uh, then we get the sad uh, announcement that Mr. Quimby is not pursuing his career anymore. If we've seen 
economic insecurity in, in these books before. We've seen the families coming through hard times. This is an actual sort of resignation. He's he he's decided that he can't get a a good a good teaching job, so he's going to go back into managing supermarkets and while that pays well, it's not a job he likes. And yep. and that is kind of a crushing thing as a kid because we're used to uh narratives about perseverance and eventual eventually triumphing over the odds. This is sort of resignation and well, you don't get everything you want in life. Yep. In fact it has the line I love I actually love this line, this moment. Uh he says that the pay and the fringe benefits are good, so he accepts. And Beezus says, Daddy, you mean you're going back to that market? You won't teach art after all? But you don't like working in the market. And he says, we can't always do what we want in life, so we do the best we can. And the mom says, that's right. We do the best we can. And I remember, even though this is, this is not nearly the equivalent of it, uh, when I was a little kid, my parents had a lot of like old LPs uh, sitting around the house. And I remember once asking my parents, you've got a lot of like old records and stuff. How come you don't ever buy any new music? And uh, either my mom or my dad was like, well, because we spend that money on you and your sister. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, really? You don't really? And they were like, <laughs> and my mom said something like, yeah, you stop like, you have we have to make a choice on what we want to spend our money on and you know so yeah and that was the first time i was like oh man like being an adult sometimes means you just don't get it you don't get what you don't get what you want like well my dad had a lot of old records around the house but that's because his tastes were really square well my parents literally have <laughs> had many slim whitman albums and <laughs> That didn't become awesome until I was in college. And then I stole all those Slim Whitman albums. Yeah, yeah. my dad was all Kingston Trio, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Oh, we had the Osmonds. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, he had a lot of, um, he had a lot of like modern jazz quartet. You know, modern jazz is actually, for, for people who don't follow jazz, it was actually a period in jazz after bebop, uh, like in the 60s and 70s, really like, where where jazz kind of completely fell apart uh -huh. and only and only really square uh, hipsters listened to it at that point <laughs> well my dad never listened to jazz uh but we did have a lot of juice newton tapes so oh. well that was that was 80s yeah I, I forgot there was he he was he was in, enrolled i believe i don't think he did it himself someone like my aunt or someone enrolled him in like country music cassette of the month club or something so he did get a bunch of country western country music cassettes so we did have we did have some juice newton yeah juice newton wasn't now was that really country that was more like pop that was like pop country it was like was pop during, country yeah it was like that, was country. that period of of like um when uh kenny rogers was really popular that was like that era yep. of of popular country she you you could sing it with an accent and that was <laughs> and that made it country uh, a little jangly guitar a little bit of jangly guitar but it was not new country it wasn't that 90s garbage <laughs> it was 80s country 
It was that Marie Osmond garbage. <laughs> In any case, what are we talking about? Uh, we've still got a lot of book left. Uh, we're, we're on the chapter of the chain of command. But this is where they go out and they buy stuff for the uh, they buy stuff for the wedding. Hobart's in charge of all the kids, and they learn that Hobart's maybe not that bad a guy after all. Right. Well, at least he buys them ice cream. And Howie has to wear girls' socks because he's the ring bearer, even though he's far too old to be a ring bearer. That's it. That's really what happened. So this is the chapter that I kind of fell in love with Hobart because Hobart's ridiculous dad humor, even though he's not a dad comes to the forefront in here and the kids keep asking him to add questions about his his uh memories of being in saudi arabia when he talks about first hearing the wolves howl uh-huh. and they say i don't think there's any wolves in saudi arabia maybe it was camels howling yeah you as an as an adult reading this i'm like wait did he live in Saudi Arabia? Like, are, is this where we're supposed to start wondering if Hobart's been lying to everyone this whole time? And he and his favorite, his favorite ice cream is chocolate mandarin orange. I have never ever seen this flavor, but now I I, I want it. Oh, and they also mentioned that avocado is a flavor of ice cream, which it is, and which I mentioned to Mitzi the other day, and. Couldn't remember where I had seen it, and then here it is, avocado ice cream. It doesn't sound like it'd be good, but then you think about it, and it's that like that creamy fat. I don't know. I can see it working. I can see it working. <laughs> we have so many like gourmet ice cream shops around this area that I'm sure it's available somewhere like within a block of my house. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is also the chapter w- though where we get Ramona looking in the uh, the three way mirror. Right. That appears on the cover of many versions of this book. Right. And this is where we get the, the, the titular Ramona forever. Yes. It's something that Cleary doesn't do that often, which is to try and provide this moment of, I don't know, enlightenment, of, 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 of encapsulation, the, the gestalt of, of, of what's going on here. And it's only for this one tiny little paragraph it's mentioned i think in another sentence at the end of the, the chapter i i feel like it it sort of works uh it, as as a as a central metaphor for the book or a central metaphor for you know if, if you step outside of the book and you see this as clary sort of waving goodbye to her creation in a way yeah it 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 has a certain kind of sadness to it, but it's it's weird to me because it, it sticks out. It's not the sort of thing that Cleary does often. Well, because she says she's looking at herself in the three-way mirror, and then she says to herself, forever me, thought Ramona, I go on forever. And I feel a little bit like Beverly Cleary is standing behind the reader going, remember that. <laughs> she goes on forever. And you're like, oh, yeah, we get it. She's an eternal character. I, as a kid, I always found three-way mirrors a little bit disappointing because they <laughs> because they because they they they're they're tilted, you know, at like a forty-five degree angle. And if they were in at a ninety-degree degree angle, then you really would get that uh, infinite uh, effect. Right. As, as you don't really get a, a good infinity effect from three-way mirrors. I think it might be because at these dress shops, they're not trying to do that. Well, my parents had a bathroom that had like two counters, like his and hers. Right. And they were right across from each other. So they each had huge, like those wall sized bathroom mirrors. So if you stood in my parents' bathroom and looked in one mirror, you did get that effect. 
That's the best effect in the world. That, that would happen on escalators all the time when yes. I was a kid. They would always do that. Just and, and the other really exciting thing when I was a kid was when you went into the shoe section and they had those tilted mirrors Over for the, looking yeah. at the shoes. Because if you looked at it as a kid, it looked like you were walking up a very st- steep incline. Uh-huh. So I'd, I would always pretend to be a mountain climber and like... <laughs> inch along the floor towards the mirror and I would embarrass my mom. So I apologize for that too, mom. They also had Brannock devices, which you just don't get anymore. Yeah. You just, they, it's all about just like trying on your own. My dad would complain endlessly at shoe stores because when he was a young man, he got a job at Foley's department store and he worked in the shoe section and he had to like study and learn about like feet and shoes and like finding the perfect fit for a customer. Like that was like an important part of his job. And then like that stopped being a thing. Now you just walk into a shoe store and you pick your own shoes. And it's just something he's never gotten over. Well, you know, you can still buy Brannock devices. They're surprisingly expensive. Wow, really? Yeah, just look up like brand, genuine Brannock device. You can go to the website, like the the men's Brannock device is seventy two fifty. Well, for those of you listening who don't know what the heck we're talking about, it's that metal thing you put your foot in that you slide the thing and it tells you what size shoe you need. And it has that little that little notch that fits right into the uh, right into the curve of your big toe. Yep, it's amazing. Uh, anyway, the families get together and Beatrice and Ho- Hobart almost break up. Right. Well, you know, I. I I, I don't as a kid reading this through, you might you might be thinking that they're going to break up. Right. Uh, they, they're just doing that thing that Clary loves to have happen, which is have adults squabble around kids and for kids to be scandalized by that. Yes. Uh, also, this is where Grandpa Day shows up and uh, he is a swinger. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. I assume he lives all by himself in the desert. I assume he has like a he lives in some like metal trailer and grows his own weed. I don't know anything about Grandpa Day. He's a mysterious character. He's he's very nice. He's very nice, but but there's something kind of funny about him showing up at this point because it's sort of like when you're watching a movie and they suddenly introduce a character with like 10 minutes to go in the in the film. Yeah. It's like this this series is almost done. This series has been running Literally since 1955, it's <laughs> almost done, and now we get Grandpa Day. And now we find out what what Dorothy's last name originally was. <laughs> like I assume she that's her dad, right? Dorothy Day. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, so thanks, Beverly Cleary, for finally clearing that up. Uh, but so, uh, so Uncle Hobart and Aunt B start arguing because he forgot to order flowers for the wedding. And he's like, don't worry about it. We'll call the florist in the morning. And she's like, the day of the wedding, you can't order flowers. And and they get into this huge fight, like yelling and screaming at in the kitchen. And this is where Grandpa Day is like, if I know anything about this neighborhood, it's that <laughs> all the lady folks will come together with a bunch of flowers. And I guess that happens. Like, I guess that happens because it, it works. It all works out. The other thing, though, about this this argument is that Hobart makes some disparaging remarks about teachers. Teachers, he, yeah, yeah. He apparently had a bad time in school. Oh, you think? It's like <laughs> he's, this is like this total trigger for him. Like she answers a question with a question, and he's like, 
Just once I'd like to hear a teacher answer a question. Why are you marrying me if you still plan on marrying me? Yeah. And then she calls him a cootie and everything's good again. But then Mr. Quimby asks his wife if she's feeling okay. And then she's like, I feel great. Why shouldn't I feel okay when I'm having a baby? It's all perfectly natural. Stop fussing. And I'm like, whoa, what's, what's going on? <laughs> and that, that's never resolved. <laughs> she's probably just sick and tired of her husband switching careers. Uh, there's a lot of stress in the Quimby family at this point. Is, is the point we're trying to make. A lot of stress. It doesn't mean the grownups are actually mad at each other. It just means they're all stressing out. Don't worry, kids. Don't worry. So on to Ramona saves the day. We get we finally get to the wedding. Yep. Um, and it, it, it's like a lot of Cleary stories in that there's a lot of business. Any 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 number, any one of a number of little things could be the central point of action because the the girls' dresses are too big. Their shoes don't fit. Shoes don't fit. Howie is singing inappropriate songs. All of Beatrice's students are coming. Right. There's like there's just like a lot of different things that you that could be the central point of the story. Um but then Grandpa Day shows up in a limo and everything's all right. And they when they get to the they get to the wedding, you know, there's some of these things pay off. Some of them don't. Uh, one of the things that has been that they've been making a big deal about is how he uh, doesn't want to be the ring bearer. Right. But they're going to let him carry it, carry the ring on the condition that the ring be sewn to the, the pillow, which I think is a thing. I think that's actually a thing with a ring bearer. You do one little stitch. Uh, so that because it's usually like a four year old and they're not going to they're not going to hold on to that pillow correctly. Uh, Hobart tries to retrieve the ring from the uh, for the for the pillow. It goes flying and, and no one can find it. Yes. And what's the 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 the, the interesting conflict here at the end is Beezus or sorry, Ramona has been told to stay. Uh, be absolutely still no matter what happens you right. know by by parent her parents who want to make sure that she does what's right she's the only one who sees where the ring has ended up and it's ended and it's ended up uh on the floor and bees be aunt b has stepped back and her the heel of her shoe is in in the ring the ring is around the heel of her high heel the question that Ramona has you know the, the the fight she has is whether she obeys the she obeys the edict to stay still or whether she lean down and pick up the pick up the ring and whether she can do that in a way that's graceful enough that it doesn't add to the uh confusion or the humiliation right now right also because Ramona and Beezus have taken off their shoes, which are too tight, so they're in their stocking feet, which is right. scandalous. Yeah. <laughs> but also, she justifies the fact with the fact that it was Mrs. Kemp who sewed the ring on too tight and caused all this problem in the first place. And she she does do the right thing and and kneel down and gently lift her aunt's foot up <laughs> so that she can retrieve the ring, which of course is a is a she 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 exhibits that kind of grace under pressure the ability to 
take charge and do what needs to be done that I, I suppose is, is the, the, the central growth of this book that, that, right. that, that we we, we, we see her doing the right thing, but the right thing in this case being taking your own initiative in spite of what you've been told to do. Right. And, and also it's that Ramona impulsiveness and creative thinking, but married with uh, the sort of like the reflection of her age at this point, like a younger Ramona would have just dived under her aunt's dress, grabbed her ankle and been like, I found the ring. This is a Ramona who still has those impulses, but who knows how to pl- who knows how to read the room better now. And uh, I always as a kid, I always liked the fact that uh, that she didn't just whisper to her aunt, the ring is around your, your heel. She actually just sort of dips under her aunt's dress, grabs her ankle and just gently lifts it up. That's a uh, she could have done it another way, but this is a very Ramona way to do it. Uh, also, did you ever go to a teacher's wedding as a child? You know, I did. That's that's weird. I, I did. Now that you mentioned it, I, I remember uh, that was actually the first wedding I ever went to was to, uh, I think it was my second grade teacher, uh-huh. or maybe it was my uh, kindergarten teacher. I can't quite remember, but it was a, a very big wedding, and I was quite impressed by it. Yeah, I was invited. Our whole class was invited to our fourth grade teacher's wedding. Uh, I did not end up going because I was too like sh- it was too it seemed too intense to see my teacher get married. But uh, yeah, teachers getting married. That's a very it's a very strange thing. I mean, we're not the first ones to observe it when that when you're that age to see your teachers having lives. Now, yeah. fortunately, that's not the case for Ramona. This is just her her right. dumb aunt. But but Beatrice's students are there and they have to kiss her. So, yeah, that's that's weird. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's that's a wedding tradition. I just I don't understand. But in any case, uh, 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 Beatrice and Hobart drive off in the in his they're heading to Alaska. He's he's no longer going to Saudi Arabia. He's moving to Alaska with her aunt and uh, and then the baby's born. Right. Now, this is kind of like. um... Like everyone knows uh, the Lord of the Rings, how it, it just can't stop ending. Yeah. It just keeps ending and ending. You know, that would have been a fine ending to the book, that last chapter. But but uh, Cleary wants to give this book two endings. Well, she, uh, she you couldn't end it without the baby being born. <laughs> well, you could have not had the baby to start with. I guess but... that's true. It's all about new beginnings, though. So uh, is it? I don't know if that's actually what this book is about. Um but yeah, algae's are coming. Right. Well, I mentioned it because this chapter, um, I, I'm 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 happy, you know, that we we end on the, this because it is this is another main major thing. I had a similar experience for, with Ramona in that I was always the youngest child until Dan was born. Yeah, uh, and Dan was born ten years after me, so it, I had a long time of being. A, the youngest child, and it's hard in some ways to readjust to what life is like now that you're the middle child. Uh, you know, I think it's easier if the kids are spaced two or three years apart and you're suddenly like, well, who cares? I don't have any really working memory of being the youngest child. But um, but so, so I, while I'm happy for this, the, this chapter as a, as a thematic chapter, 
I'm a little bit aggravated because there's this business in the middle with Ramona and the doctor that just seems kind of like padding padding yes very much like padding and it feels like the kind of padding that i thought clearly was done with at this point well it's it it, it, well you do i mean it is that weird thing where like ramona the baby is born the girls are invited to the hospital and ramona is not allowed in because she's too young to go into the maternity ward which is really i don't think it's handled well by the family like they're like oh well, then just sit here, Ramona. And then they disappear for like a long time. Like no one, no one stops to comfort this little girl. No one's like, I'm like, no one seems concerned that Ramona's stuck in a, in a waiting room chair for however long she's out there. And it's actually a, the Ramona starts feeling gross and germy and she gets all itchy and a doctor comes by and comforts her. Like it's, it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird moment. It's, it's a long moment. The reason it feels like padding is it's a lot of pages in that are at what is clearly the denouement of the book. Yeah. And even as a kid, you have a sense of narrative construction. It's sort of like, okay, now we're going to put in something like this. This seems more like a chapter from the original Henry Huggins books to me. That kind of like, oh, now we have this chapter to kill and we have this chapter to kill. Right, right. I don't know. You, hap- you thought it's someone, happening in the myth. So go ahead. I was going to say, you, and, and I just, it just seems like someone would have checked in on this before they <laughs> asked Ramona to come to the hospital. But it, it is, yeah, it's happening in the middle of a, of a, of a, of the end of the book. Yeah. Well, anyway, here comes Roberta Jean Quimby. Right. Um, and, you know, again, props to Clary for describing a newborn the way newborns actually look, which is all red and blotchy and cross-eyed, and cross-eyed and wrinkly and kind of uh, a lot thinner than you think they're going to be. Yep. And uh, congratulations to 1984 for having the mom just hold the baby in the front seat of the car <laughs> rather than rather than have, you know, to put the baby in a car seat where it will actually be safe. <laughs> Look, uh, as late as as late as as 1994 yeah. with our first baby, <laughs> we could you you took when we had to go uh, fly home for the baby's first visit to the grandparents. Uh, our, our first baby sat on my wife's lap. Great. So. That that was that was uh, you know re- recent history. But we do get the wonderful little observation from Ramona that she says, "You know what I think? I think it's hard work to be a baby." Uh, and everyone's like, "You know what? I think you're right." And then Mr. Quimby says, "Growing up is hard work. Sometimes being grown up is hard work." And uh, and we get this little ending where uh, when people kind of like laugh about something Ramona says, and then she comes to the conclusion that she is winning at growing up. Hashtag winning. <laughs> well, this, this of course, precedes Charlie Sheen by... Yes. <laughs> A couple of decades. I mean, he was, he, was, he was an up-and-comer at this point. He was a couple of years away from his big breakout, but... Uh... <laughs> but it says... Uh, it gives you this little... Uh, she says she thought about loose teeth... 
real sore throats, quarrels, misunderstandings with her teachers, longing for a bicycle her family could not afford, worrying when her parents bickered, how terrible she had felt when she hurt Beezus's feelings without meaning to, and all the long afternoons when Mrs. Kemp looked after her until her mother came home from work. She had survived it all. And uh, that's like definitely Beverly Cleary saying, this is the end, folks. Like, there's a review of the whole series. Uh, mis especially the misunderstandings with her teachers gives it away because that did not happen in this book. That was uh, that was the story of Ramona's life for many years was those teachers. And so this is definitely, definitely, definitely Beverly Cleary closing the door on Ramona. Yeah, and it's un it's uh, again unusual. Cle Cleary doesn't do this kind of encapsulation that often, you know, in fact, there have been several of these books where I've been a little shocked by how abruptly they end. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of like the action is done. Goodbye. Uh-huh. Uh, but this is this, but she is taking a moment here to mark this as a very important time to, you know, in, in Ramona's life and a time to say an appropriate time to say goodbye. She is, she is well and truly no longer Ramona the Pest. Now she is Ramona the older sister. Yep. And uh and we'll never we'll never find out where it goes from there. Or will we? <laughs> or will we? Uh well because because uh, this is where this is a near the point where Cleary's work starts getting a little sporadic. Well, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, it's uh, it, not just a little bit. I mean, I think that I think that um, if you look at the output from this point on, it's it's, uh, you know, she 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 returns to she returns briefly to her Mr. Henshaw characters. And then she does these weird things like, you know, Muggy Maggie mm -hmm. or Which whatever is a strange little book, apparently. Yeah. And she, then her autobiographies, her autobiographies. Yeah. And then how many more books do we have after this? We have novel wise. We have novel three wise. more novels, three more. novels. We have Muggy Maggie Strider and Ramona's world. Uh, but there's a few children's books, including a story of a man and a motorcycle called Lucky Chuck. Uh, which is a picture book that came out right after uh, Ramona Forever, that is sort of a real as a is a regular departure for old Beverly Cleary. Yeah, we'll we'll figure it out. But let's 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 reconvene with M Muggy Maggie next time because that's a really short uh, and and strange uh, book, and we probably will have almost nothing to say about it. Yeah, is it a is it a, is it, it is it a novel? It's it's her discussion of whether or not kids need to learn cursive yeah and we'll 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 pick it up um when we when we get there but that that was that was a big uh conversation people were having at the time oh and it's been re-illustrated by tracy Dockray. oh okay <laughs> <laughs> i guess I, I actually i went to my uh my daughter's uh, elementary school her montessori school's big a uh, used book sale this week uh which has hundreds upon hundreds of books and there was a box almost entirely of beverly cleary books 
uh, that someone had had a lot of multiples and stuff, but that someone had brought probably cleaning out a classroom or something. Every single Beverly Cleary book you could think of was represented except Muggy Maggie. And I was so disappointed because that means I'm going to have to like go out and find a copy. <laughs> well, there are libraries, Phil. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but yes, let's reconvene with Muggy Maggie uh, and we can share our own stories of learning cursive. I wanted to, I wanted to just say really, really briefly here, a big thank you. I got a really lovely set of letters from uh, uh, Brooke from from Oregon, who grew up around the the same place that uh, Cleary's stories are set in. We don't have an official email for this podcast, so she she took the initiative to write to the incomparable, and it got passed on to us. And I just want to say a big thanks to that. And I also wanted to say thank you once again to our uh, Facebook friend, Amy, who sent along, uh, like a year and a half ago, a cassette of a an interview that Beverly Cleary did uh, in the in the mid 80s, which is a fascinating thing to listen to. And I finally got around to digitizing it and sending it to Phil. Yes. Uh, maybe we'll discuss that sometime. That would be nice. Plus, we've got uh, a, a movie to cover at some point tv, <laughs> series. TV series yes so that'll be something to look at once we've read ramona's world uh spoiler alert there's one more ramona book uh which i, I think we've actually discussed on this episode so it's not a spoiler uh but coming up next muggy maggie uh <laughs> i'm phil <laughs> i'm john <laughs> goodbye this has been Clickcast. <laughs> see ya see ya bye Click a cast is brought to you by the Incomparable Network. Find more funny smart podcasts online at theincomparable.com.